0: To create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list we think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them please visit the site today welcome to the new books network
2: and welcome back to another episode of new books on japanese studies a podcast channel of the new books network i am Jenny lee from the university of arizona Today, our guest is Dr. Sven Seller, a professor of Japanese history at Sofia University. His new book, Men in Metal, a topography of public bronze statuary in modern Japan, was published earlier this year by Brill. So this beautifully made book examines how bronze statues were made to construct the iconography of national heroes since the late 19th century. It also discusses the historiographical controversies uh, surrounding statue building. So welcome Dr. Sala, thank you so much for joining us. Yes,
1: hello and thank you for inviting me.
2: Thank you. So, so this book reads uh, really more like, a, more, it's more than just history, it's uh, art and political history as well feels like to me. So could you tell us a bit more about your research areas and how you came to working on this project?
1: Yes, thank you for that uh, question. When I was a PhD student, uh, I was mainly studying the history of Japanese foreign relations, and uh, I still have a research project going on in this field. Uh, But as you and your listeners probably will be aware of since the 1990s uh, memory studies has become a growing academic field, and uh, in the the year 2000, I happened to take up a research position in Tokyo, and uh, at that time, historical revisionism was a major issue that many historians were discussing. Uh, so I got interested in these topics and joined these discussions, publishing a number of articles and uh, eventually a book on the history textbook controversy and uh, the debates about the commemoration of the warded. Uh, that was in 2005. And uh, while I was exploring these issues of history education and the use of uh, memorials as tools of education, I realized that memorials dedicated to historical personalities, most commonly in the form of statues, were a uh, ubiquitous element in Japan's memorial landscape. Um, so there were so many of them, I just got curious uh, about whether this was the result of a planned or systematic process, and if so, who planned these statues and uh, why, and who paid for them. So uh, lots of Questions came up, and uh, I also began to realize that um, books uh, were starting to come out on uh, the public statuary in other countries, uh, such as the United States, uh, but also Europe, uh, particularly France and uh, Germany. And uh, when I realized that hardly anything had been written about Japanese statues, um, definitely not in English, but at the time not even that much in uh, Japanese. I decided to take a closer look at this genre of memorials in modern Japan.
2: That's very interesting. And that's actually the first uh, question that came into my mind when I saw the title of this book. Because when talking about Japan statues, a lot of people are probably more familiar with Buddhist statues that were mostly made of wood. Um, Could you give us a brief introduction of how bronze was introduced to Japan as a material for statues, as well as uh, whether there are differences in the choice of statue materials between uh, wood and bronze or any other material.
1: Uh, Yeah, thank you. So, um, right, my book focuses on bronze statues because in modern Japan, they are by far the majority of memorials dedicated to historical personalities or individuals. In uh, many European countries, in addition to bronze statues, uh, you can also find larger numbers of uh, marble statues, for example, or monuments made simply of stone, but also other materials. But in Japan, we see uh, different materials being used only during times of uh, metal shortages, so uh, particularly during the war. During the war, um, the usage of uh, metal for art um, including Bronx, was uh, regulated. Um, so um, um, no statues were built um, after 1940 made of Bronx, um, but uh, other materials were used um, at that time. And also we find in Japan some uh, statues where the local conditions required the use of specific uh, materials such as stone because um, stone or something else was readily available in a given location um but bronze also was um a material that was traditionally used for religious statues of course for um a buddhist um sculpture um, um the the early buddhist sculpture is more often uh, wood, um as you say um but uh, of course like the two big buddhas of nara and uh, Kamura, kamakura uh they are bronze statues and some smaller uh, buddhist statues and also many uh, statues of Buddhist saints are often made of bronze. If you go to a temple in Japan today, you will often find bronze statues of uh, Buddhist saints, uh, for example. Um, and although this kind of Buddhist sculpture gradually declined after the 16th uh, century, the new um, fashion of public memorials dedicated to histori- historical figures took up this um, Buddhist Bronx tradition, and thus almost all uh, public statues of individuals we find today in Japan are made of bronze.
2: Wow, that's very interesting. Um, so to, to return to the uh, what you said a bit earlier, um, was there any pattern in choosing whether wood or bronze um, when the sizes of the statues are... Um, Different, like what because the the two statues you mentioned, the one in Nala and the one in Kamakura, they are relatively huge, Mm, yeah. Right,
1: Mm. uh, yeah. So, in uh, pre modern Japan, when it comes to uh, Buddhist statues, although I'm not uh, an expert uh, of pre modern Buddhist statuary, but um, it seems to be the case that the really large um, statues were generally made of bronze. There are even other cases, even. Uh, modern uh, Buddha, Buddha statues, uh, for example, in the city of Takaoka, which is actually a traditional Bronx uh, making uh, center in the prefecture of Toyama. There is a big Buddha several meters high, uh, which was cast in uh, in the 1930s. Uh, and it's also made of, of bronze. So usually the larger uh, statues and the larger sculpture would tend to be in a uh, bronze uh, while um, um, the smaller one would be in wood. But we have exceptions too. We also have relatively large wooden Buddha statues, um, of course. So. Um, yeah.
2: Well, mm. oh, thank you. Uh, I learned a lot from that. Um, so although the subject, this bronze statue subject may sound narrow. As your book shows, it actually covers more than a century, and Japan is not the only subject studied here. So before we get into the contents of the book, could you give us an overview of what the structure of this book is like?
1: Yeah, so the book starts with the Meiji period, with the 1870s, because um, as we've just discussed, in pre-Meiji Japan, there really were no public statues Um, showing historical or contemporary personalities. Um, There were were some wooden sculptures, um, again, of uh, famous feudal lords in temples where the graves of these lords would be located, But uh, these sculptures were um, objects of private worship for family and uh, for retainers. So they were usually not shown publicly, not even accessible uh, publicly. And uh, also they were, in terms of their function, they were not set up to um, indoctrinate uh, the general populace with any specific idea or ideology. But this changed after the Meiji restoration of 1868, when Japan began to construct a national history and for the first time uh, began to explore methods to disseminate the nation's historical narrative among the population. This was done, of course, first of all, through formal education in schools, um, but also through social education in the public sphere. And this is where Uh, the public space and where statues and also other monuments in public space, of course, come in as a medium through which the narratives of Japan's national history would be propagandized. But um, since the idea of the nation uh, is a rather abstract um, um, idea, and um, it it is kind of difficult to communicate, um, statues of uh, figures, of persons, That uh, symbolize, that represent uh, the nation and its values were very important in this process of um, what um, George Mosse has called the nationalization of the masses. So this is also one of the concepts I use in the introduction of the book. Um, today um, um, we are witnessing uh, lots of debates uh, regarding statues uh, worldwide, uh, and in Japan we have to keep in mind it was also um, um, there were also a lot of debates and controversies about um, statues during the process of uh, planning a statue and uh, building of statues was was often accompanied by intense historiographical debates, which you also referred to in your question so uh, the first chapters of the book are uh, mostly case studies in which i trace how discussions about statues were related to the historiographical debates concerning the historical figure to be presented Um, but uh, sometimes also uh, this would even extend uh, to discussions uh, regarding historical event or even an entire historical epoch so this is very very important byproduct um, of statue building, or maybe the other way around, statue building is uh, a product of these historiographical debates. Um, But the book um, in later chapters is not only about the building of statues, it's also about how statues were instrumentalized in education, as I already said, uh, but also in in mass festivals, which of course also have a pedagogic function, and uh, in war mobilization campaigns. And uh, in the last uh, part of the book, I then look at um, the post-war resurgence of statuary because most of Japan's statue was destroyed during the war. And uh, after 1945, um, again, more than several thousand statues were actually built, which are standing today all over Japan, Um, and this is not counting uh, statues of um, abstract notions, such as peace statues um, or statues of manga car- characters. So, so there are several thousand statues only dedicated to historical personality, which are today occupying Japan's public spaces.
2: Wow! I have so many <laughs> questions about what you said, but <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll just start from the from the uh, first uh, section mm-hmm. of your book. So you mentioned that uh, the bronze statues in modern Japan are usually for imperial members or national heroes. Um, and, the, and the, that the um, abstract concept or um, cartoon figures are only a recent thing. Um, so in the case of imperial members, you specifically discussed the invisibility rather than visibility uh, of modern Japanese empress. Can you talk more about this visibility, invisibility, and how that can be contextualizing the historical background of Japan, Japan's modernization? Because the entire purpose of making a statue is so that people can come see it and worship it, right? But your, in your book, you said they were kept hidden for quite a while. What, what happened? Why was
1: that? Yeah, thank you. That, that was indeed one of the most difficult tasks uh, to tackle. And and I think even in the final form of the book, it has remained a somewhat ambiguous issue. Um, so maybe let me answer that in, in two parts. Uh, so first of all, the, the early statuary. Uh, if we look at the early statuary, we can clearly see that uh, it is connected to the theme of imperial restoration. And uh, this is obviously uh, related to the Meiji restoration being uh, at least supposedly the restoration of the emperor to direct power, uh, but also the establishment of the emperor's supreme command over the military. Uh, Both of these um, developments um, were um, astonishing, uh, but in particular, the latter was a really difficult sell Uh, given that uh, the warrior families had monopolized the military sector for several centuries, right? And now suddenly uh, the emperor, who was traditionally a part of the civilian court aristocracy, was supposed to be the supreme military commander. Uh, In 1868, 69, this sounded like a very unlikely scenario. So as a result of that, we can actually see that the imperial Japanese army got involved in many statue projects, most most of which um, either showed contemporary members of the imperial house who um, occupied military positions. Actually, every male member of the imperial family had to become a member of the imperial Japanese military. Um, All uh, uh, these statues showed pre-modern emperors who held military functions, um, or the third category, warriors who allegedly had fought loyally for an emperor in the past. So all of these figures were now put up in the public in order to demonstrate that the imperial family somehow always had been in charge of the military sector, and that this fact had just been forgotten for a while, like for a few centuries, if not for a millennium. So it was a very far-fetched um, idea in a in a way, but that is why the Imperial Japanese Army and to a smaller degree also the Navy was so engaged in a statue building in the early uh, phase of the Meiji period. Um, Then uh, the invisibility of the current emperor. So um, throughout uh, the Meiji period, we can see a process of transforming Meiji emperor into a sacred being, which, of course, culminates in uh, the 1889 constitution in which the Meiji emperor or the emperor is defined as a sacred being uh, who is inviolable. While there were also some efforts to bring him closer to the people, for example, through the famous progresses that Meiji undertook in the 1870s and 1880s, permanent representations of the emperor's image remained uh, quite restricted until the 20th uh, century. For example, uh, the famous portrait of the emperor, which you and your listeners might think about now. Um, uh, This portrait was uh, strictly regulated, and uh, it was mainly distributed to state institutions. As an individual, you could not own, you could not have an imperial portrait, and it was not officially sold. Um, But uh, due to the development of a black market on which these portraits were sold um, illegally, uh, the government gradually uh, relaxed these rules. And, um, for example, publishers of lithographs um, found ways around this official uh, ban because they uh, started selling lithographic portraits, which aren't exactly photographic portraits. So, strictly speaking, they did not fall under the ban. Um, although this was eventually up to the authorities to, side, to decide. Um, but more and more, the authorities were um, kind of uh, turning a blind eye on these things, and they realized uh, bit by bit um, that actually emperor worship might not be such a bad thing. So um, after, basically after the Russo-Japanese War of 1905, they really let it go, and after 1905, we have lots of... Um, um photographs and other images of emperor Meiji um, in, uh, in in journals on lithographs and uh, even in in newspapers um, at least by the 1910s for example on the occasion of the emperor's uh, funeral in 1912 but in statuary uh, um, it is it is crystal clear that uh, the emperor meiji emperor is uh, basically invisible so uh, until 1968. And that's 1968, so 100 years after the Meiji Restoration, which was of course um, um, the, the centennial, right? And there were some festivities, festivities to mark the uh, centennial of the Meiji Restoration. Until then, uh, no statues of Meiji Tenno were set up in public space. There were only a couple of statues in memorial sites, in memorial halls. So they stood inside. And these uh, halls were even out of reach from the larger population centers, and they were protected and everything. Um, but his image was considered too sacred to be put up in the public, in the direct reach of the common population, and in danger of being uh, vandalized, um, or even worse. Interestingly, uh, this did not apply to other imperial figures. Uh, for example, Jimuteno, the founder of the Japanese emperor, uh, who's uh, of the Japanese empire, whose um, statues were built in various locations of Japan. Um, these statues were obviously built in order to compensate for the lack of Meiji statues. And uh, in some cases, actually, Jimutenos actually looked more like um, Meiji statues. So here we see it quite clearly that the idea was to compensate for the lack of Meiji statuary. Um, but yeah, maybe we can talk about this again uh, later
2: that sounds quite (laughs) odd that um, they would make a statue for a person or god, Mm -hmm. or the Gemu Emperor that nobody had ever Mm -hmm. seen rather than making a statue of the Meiji Mm -hmm. Emperor. But would you say uh, the invisibility of the Imperial members changed after the Second World War?
1: In one way or the other, yes. Um, So it's, um, in in a way, the old patterns were preserved. So um, as is very well known, Shovat Deno, after World War II, also went to travel all over the country, right? So he did, in a way, what his grandfather did in the 1870s and 80s. He went on, uh, uh, well, progresses. We don't call it progresses, I think, (laughs) with reference to... Uh, Shobateno, but he still visited um, I think almost every single Japanese prefecture um, actually apart from Okinawa uh, for which there's probably a good reason but um, that's maybe not uh, in the frame of today's topic so uh, Shobateno did um, these um, trips and he also approached the people more closely than Meiji Teno did because when Meiji travelled all over Japan he was actually still hidden away, people were not actually able to look at him. Um, and uh, 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 there were regulations that if people came to see the progress uh, of Meiji Tenno, they were supposed to look down or struck, so to say, and not stare at uh, Emperor Meiji. There's a great book, of course, about this by uh, Fujitani Takashi, uh, Splendid uh, Monarchy, which has explored this part of Meiji Tenno's uh, visibility or partly invisibility. Um, but um, as far as a statuary is concerned, um, we, we see very similar uh, patterns even in the post war period. So, as I said, in 1968, um, in order to mark the centennial of the Meiji Restoration, there were these big festivities. And uh, uh, Nick Kapoor has recently published a very interesting article um, about that. Um, Actually, as a part of these um, festivities, uh, there was also a plan to build a huge statue of Meiji Tenno. Actually, the plan said um, a big statue of Meiji Tenno, not just any statue. But they wanted to build a really big statue of Meiji Tenno. Um, but at one point, it was deleted from the list of projects, so it was not; uh, it did not materialize. But then there was this uh, private um, nationalist activist who said, "Well, um, if the authorities are incapable to build this kind of statue, which Japan really needs, he thought, uh, then I will organize a even bigger project, building 100 Meiji statues all over the country." Um, it's quite interesting that at that point, um, it um, it was not like Japanese progressives who started uh, to complain. It was actually um, the very conservative cir- circles and um, um, the gatekeepers of the image of uh, the emperor, including uh, the Meiji shrine, uh, but also the Imperial Household Agency. Um, these organizations issued statements saying, oh, this kind of inflationary Uh, use of the uh, empress image is not uh, desirable. So this uh, project to build 100 statues did not materialize. About one dozen of statues were actually built. So today in some statues, in some Japanese cities, you can find statues of uh, Meiji Tenno. uh, But uh, the plan still failed to entirely. Uh, uh, materialized because of the opposition of uh, the imperial household um, agency. So obviously it still remained long after the war. And in a certain degree, I think still to de- until today, um, there is a general hesitancy to put the emperor's image into the public.
2: That's such a fascinating story. And uh, I guess we can sort of see the, the complicated uh connections to 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 politics, to social life, behind bronze statues. So in studying these uh, modern bronze statue, what um what what were some of the social dynamics that were involved in the planning, designing, and construction of these statues? Who were the you just mentioned um there were, social activists Mm. and there were the conservative parties, who else, what what other social dynamics Mm. were involved
1: in this? Yeah. Um, So because there were so many statues all over the country in, in each prefecture, basically without exception. Uh, Initially, I thought that there must have been some kind of master plan or some central institution behind this growth of um, public statuary in modern Japan. However, I eventually found that this was not a planned or systematic process at all. Uh, There were some uh, leading institutions, uh, such as the Imperial Army, as uh, already mentioned. Um, but and then there were also some uh, influential families who um, had sufficient financial resources and who seemed to have a sense of mission regarding the achievements of their own forefathers, so that they would set up statues um, of uh, former daimyo or feudal domain feudal lords uh, in their hometowns. Uh, generally, however, the statue building became a widespread fashion uh, throughout out, through all. Um, um, parts of Japanese uh, society, and it was often indeed grassroots um, initiatives from which plans for a statue emerged, and uh, which also collected uh, donations to realize them, and which later organized uh, festivities relating to the statue or the character depicted in a statue. The uh, central and prefectural governments, um, if anything, played only a regulating role. Um, There were a number of laws since uh, the Meiji period that mandated that if you wanted to build a statue, you had to apply for permission through the local police office, then to the prefectural government, and um, at the end, uh, uh, to the Home ministry in uh, Tokyo. But overall, the government seems to have taken a hands-off approach, and only very few statues were um, rejected. Um, actually, uh, I found quite a number of examples of uh, rather questionable statues that were eventually realized, and uh, the home industry sometimes overlooked uh, quite obvious problems with some statue plans.
0: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Huh. <laughs> huh. Now that you mention I do remember when I was living in Japan, I was I was living in Saga oh, yeah. for one year. And in front of the 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 city library, I think, there was uh a, a park that they called the the forest of statues and it was full of bronze oh, okay. statues of all kinds of people it was kind of creepy especially <laughs> yes.
1: if you go there is. um
2: <laughs> in the evening <laughs> but yeah it's now that just what you said about the 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 uh, Eruption of numbers of statue just hmm. reminded me of that.
1: That's interesting. I actually went to Saga to uh, witness a inauguration ceremony, an unveiling ceremony, a few years ago, and I also looked at other statues. But I didn't. I don't remember going to this uh, park with. with uh, yeah. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, it
2: was creepy. If If I you imagine. ever yeah. get another yeah. chance to go yeah. there, yes. <laughs> Yeah. Mm. <laughs> okay. So now moving on to part two, yeah. mm. where you present a quantitative study of bronze statues. So what do you mm. look for when you, uh, in this quantitative study, what, what do you look for and what are some of the results that you were able to mm-hmm. summarize from them?
1: Yeah. So the quantitative analyze, I think is a quite unique feature of uh, this book. Uh, Most studies of uh, memorials in other countries um, are are limited to um, case studies. Um, So it would be a a, um, collection of case studies of three, five, or yeah, about that, uh, case studies of uh, statue projects. But given the large number of statues uh, in Japan, I created a database in which I compiled relevant data regarding statues, such as. The year in which a statue was built, um, its location, the person depicted in a memorial, his or her uh, background and function, as well as the group that initiated the building of a statue. Um, this uh, database includes the data of more than two thousand uh, statues, so it is not complete. Uh, but because the data is uh, uh, because the data is sometimes uh, not easily available. Um, But I think uh, this was uh, a sufficiently critical mass that um, um, allowed me to come up with some meaningful conclusions. So um, amongst others, uh, I came up, for example, with um, um, cycles in the intensity of statue buildings, uh, years in which many statues were built, periods with a particularly low uh, degree of uh, statue building. But I could also find out which regions were particularly um, into statue buildings and those that are not. Um, And uh, I also came up with a categorization of uh, statues, looking at what kind of personalities were particularly often represented in statuary. And uh, I also came up with something like a top 10 of historical personalities depicted in public statuary um uh, another uh result from this uh, quantitative research also concerned uh, the gender of statues and uh um this is of course um one of the um easiest to determine uh, characteristic of um a statue and the result was that um probably unsurprisingly uh f- statues of female figures are very rare and uh, quantitatively it would be about 5% overall from Meiji japan to today uh, 5% of Japanese statues would show a female person, uh, a female historical figure. And uh, yeah, 95% would be men. And uh, that is also partly why I thought, well, the title of the book, Man in Metal. Although I had already some, uh, uh, some feedback saying why men are there no uh, women. But uh, yeah, the point is it's it's 5%. And uh, to be fair, uh, Japan is not an exception here. If we look at other countries, uh, I found a number, uh, a no- number regarding the United States, and in the U.S. it seems to be eight percent. So Japan is not a total outlier in this respect. This is, of course, a result of um, the 19th century great man view of history, right? Uh, and the 19th century is also when this idea of Statues that represent the nation uh, is coming up, so it is connected to this. Men make history; men are uh, there are great men that uh, make history, and they are also represented in the public statuary um, far more often than great women.
2: Indeed, it's it's the the this the number is just a reflection of the. Well, I wouldn't say inequality, because in the 19th century, you really can't talk about equality <laughs> right. between men mm-hmm. and women, but that's, um, that number is still yeah. quite shocking. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, it is. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so, I think yeah. it's also interesting, you know, today we have all of these discussions about statues, right? And I mean, the most common thing is today, the most common theme is about whether a statue should be preserved or not because the person in question is uh, related uh, to the history of that country um, um, and its colonialism, right? Or in the United States, um, slavery. Um, that is a big discussion now, actually, a discussion about. Uh, uh, needing more statues of women uh, is still not very widely heard, um, I think. So uh, in Britain and in Belgium, it's mostly about the legacy of colonialism, um, including uh, uh, facets of genocide. In the United States, it's mostly about the history of um, slavery. But, um, yeah, the the gender of statues hasn't become a major issue so far, although in the U.S. the situation is pretty much the same with a very small minority of uh, statues only that represent women.
2: Yes, I know of some scholars that are really pushing hard to, um, for, for for many countries, yeah. mm-hmm. not just Japan, to establish right. more statues mm-hmm. of comfort oh, women. And yeah. mm-hmm. yeah, it's mm-hmm. definitely, a, yeah. Um, yeah, I sure hope that we see more statues of yeah. women yeah. in the future.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely.
2: Now, as we delve into Japan during the Second World War, um, as your study shows, the construction of bronze statues was deeply affected by the war, especially by the tight control of raw materials around this time, so much so that the government would melt statues to get the materials from them. I thought it was very interesting because one would imagine that the country would need more historicized heroes or iconography for the purpose of nation building during such a time but apparently the need for raw metal was more important. Was that more like a changing process? And what was done after the war when some of these National Hero statues were repurposed? Did did anybody rebuild them? Did they replace it with a wood one or anything?
1: Yeah, thank you for that question. So, um, yeah, World War II—I mean, obviously—brought lots of hardships to Japan and uh, the Japanese people, but it was also a highly destructive moment for the country's uh, public statuary Um, because the majority, as uh, we've discussed before, uh, was made of bronze. The government in 1943 decreed. The collection of most statues and uh, almost um, all statues were then taken down from their pedestals, melted down, and uh, recycled, uh, mostly into ammunition for the production of which you obviously need um, copper and bronze. In uh, 1940, uh, around 800 statues, bronze statues, stood in public spaces uh, all over Japan, and uh, less than 100 of these statues survived this uh, mobilization campaign. So uh, about 700 statues all over Japan, Bronx statues, were taken down uh, from their pedestals and then destroyed. Um, so in 1945, when the uh, occupation period uh, begins, uh, public spaces were actually quite uh, empty, which also did lead to statues not becoming a major issue between uh, the uh, Allied occupation of Japan And the Japanese government and uh, administration, there were only very few cases where um, the occupation forces ordered that a statue um, would be taken down. In most cases, they weren't even destroyed. They were just relocated. Um, And most of the statues that had survived actually were statues of imperial figures. So the imperial figures were exempted. And this is exactly... Uh, what you were referring to in your question because you need in a war not only um, um, motivation uh, uh, through um, um, uh, national heroes uh, uh, you you don't need only um, um, raw materials you also need this motivation through national heroes Um, and uh, that's why about 100 uh, of the statues were left and these were the most important statues that uh, signified Um, either uh, the military command of the emperor or the loyalty to the emperor. After the war, then, uh, many of the statues were rebuilt. Um, So although they all had disappeared uh, by uh, 1945, over the years, um, almost all statues, with some exceptions, um, uh, were rebuilt. There were, of course, a number of categories in uh, post-war Japan that didn't match the post-war identity of Japan anymore. So, um, for example, um, obviously statues of military figures did not fit the pacifism of post-war Japan anymore. So military statues, statues showing military officers or soldiers were not uh, commonly uh, rebuilt. Um, And in post-war Japan, a lot of new statues were built. Uh, So statues that did not exist uh, before 1945 uh, first of all, uh, symbols of Japanese culture. Uh, for example, uh, today in Japan, there are several dozen statues of the uh, poet Basho. Um, and uh, Basho uh, in post war Japan was uh, seen as an expression of post war Japan's identity as a culture state, right? As a bunka kokka. And uh, this category is clearly much more prominent in post war Japan than it was in pre war Japan.
2: Well, that's very interesting. I happen to be reading about the Basho boom in the 1930s. So I would have imagined them to make Basho's statue around that time, yeah. but I guess he was not motivating enough.
1: Yeah. No, the war. I would have to look it up, but I don't think a single statue of Basho was built before the war. I think it's a purely um, post war phenomenon. But uh, when you say 1930s, this is, of course, already when the war began. And before the statues were destroyed in 1943-44, there were already regulations since the late 1930s that uh, disallowed artists from using metal for the production of art. And that included uh, sculpture. So um, since 1937 in particular, um, artists were not allowed to produce statues um, anymore. And then 1943, the destruction was the next uh, level. But in the 1930s, very, very few statues were actually built.
2: Wow. That is so interesting. Um, and so then after, after talking about the, the regulations during the war, your book then talks about Japan's legacy in its outer territories during colonization. What were some of the places And what kind of bronze statues were left behind?
1: Yeah, uh, so actually, bronze statues were built all over the Japanese empire, so including uh, Taiwan, uh, the south of Sahalin, uh, or Karafto, as it was called in Japanese, but also Korea. And even beyond that, uh, even in the Japanese uh, leased territory of southern Manchuria, the Liaodong Peninsula, and uh, also in some of the cities alongside the South Manchurian and railway zone. So uh, all the way up to Harbin in uh, central Manchuria, we find Japanese statues. And uh, the subject matter is very similar to uh, the statuary in uh, uh, Japan on the Japanese islands. Um, so it is um, um, national heroes, uh, very often uh, war heroes very often uh, generals that helped building the Japanese colonial empire, for example, generals from the Russo-Japanese War. And uh, interestingly, while all statues on the Japanese main islands were destroyed, uh, the statues in these colonial territories were not affected by the 1943-44 mobilization campaign. But as you can imagine, uh, in most places, these symbols of Japanese colonial rule and oppression were not particularly welcome anymore after 1945, after Japan's defeat and surrender. So in uh, Korea and China, Japanese statues were taken down uh, from their pedestals now and uh, most likely destroyed. Most of them disappeared without much of a trace. Uh, Only in Taiwan, as far as we know, uh, some statues uh, survived. Many years ago, I visited the hometown of the politician Goto Shinpei in uh, Iwate Prefecture. And uh, the people at the Goto Shinpei Memorial told me that uh, in Taiwan, two pre-war statues, including one of Goto, had uh, survived and were now exhibited at the Taiwan National Museum. Uh, I didn't have a chance to to visit Taiwan since uh, that, but I have photographs and it appears that uh, these uh, statues today are exhibited uh, within the museum. So they have not been put back on their prominent position outdoors in public space, but uh, they are exhibited within the museum as a part of the exhibition regarding the history of the island under Japanese colonial rule. Uh, which, by the way, is a pretty good uh, way to deal with controversial or outdated um, statues uh, without throwing them, say, into the sea uh, or destroying them uh, otherwise entirely.
2: That is fascinating. And I, I yeah, I wonder what um, the other areas would have done with those statues. But now that, that now that we're running out of time... Um, The most important conclusion of this book is that bronze statues in early modern or pre-modern and modern Japan have more social and political meanings than its artistic value sometimes. How would you situate your analyses of these bronze statues in the changing historical background from the 19th century to the 20th century Japan?
1: Yeah, thank you. So um, first of all, um, even though sculpture obviously is a form of art, uh, when we look at the primary sources, they clearly tell us that the main consideration was whether a political message would come across, namely the message of Japan being a great nation and uh, a great nation as personified uh, in the great person that the viewer was looking at. So uh, statues in the 19th and 20th century in Japan, but in other countries as well, uh, were, therefore, instruments to disseminate the idea of the nation nation, and to make this abstract notion of the nation more accessible to the population. That is a function that statues have been fulfilling from the 19th century until today uh, continuously. So this part of their function, Uh, I think, has not fundamentally changed, although the notion is today probably more controversial than it was, say, in the 19th century. But in the case of Japan, what has changed uh, somewhat is the contents of the national identity and the values that are being transported and communicated by statues. So before 1945, as we have discussed before, Uh, Important values would include military prowess, military virtues, uh, loyalty to the emperor, and even the sacrificial spirit to die uh, for the emperor, if necessary. Uh, Figures representing these values, um, as I explained before, included medieval warriors, the members of the movement to restore the emperor in the 1860s, um, but also soldiers sacrificing their lives in the wars of modern Japan. After 1945, this set of values was not useful anymore. It did not match anymore with the post-war identity of Japan as a pacifist nation, as a peace state, Heiwakoka, and uh, because Japan was trying to distance itself uh, from its militarist past, Uh, new uh, personifications of the nations uh, had to be produced. And these were the representatives of Japanese culture, um, but also science and uh, more recently even sports uh, athletes. So there there is a change in the the, uh, subject matter, uh, but not so much in terms of the function, uh, namely the indoctrination of the people with the idea of the nation and with nationalism. Uh, but even in the terms of the subject matter, we can see one uh, continuity because uh, one of the characteristics of Japan's public statuary um, that results from this focus on the nation um, is, uh, the, uh, is an almost obsessive focus on the history of the Meiji Restoration. That is something we can see in pre-war statuary and it continues, c- continues in post-war Japan uh, as well. And it was actually reinvigorated uh, uh in the late 1960s as a result of the festivities marking the centennial of the Meiji Restoration
2: it's it's amazing that you paid attention to this this um entire i guess the entire historical context behind these statues that we may just see out of a train station yeah. mm-hmm. nowadays Amongst
1: others yes yeah. mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's it's yes, it's really amazing. I have I actually had a lot a lot more questions from reading the book, but I guess I'll just um, ask this one last question. In your study, what was the prefecture that made the most bronze statues?
1: Yeah, that is uh, one of the results that my quantitative analysis uh, uh, resulted in. Um, Number one is clearly Tokyo. Um, and, and that doesn't necessarily say um, a lot. Um, so basically, I think we can see in the top 10 prefectures, we can see two groups. One of them can be simply explained, namely the affluent urban centers. So Tokyo, Osaka, Kobe. Um, that is not only where the polit- uh, politics um, is uh, concentrated, but also where the money is. So in these cities, it would be the easiest to raise uh, donations to pay for a statue. Um, The second category, and that's probably more interesting, but also fits in with what I just explained at the end um, after your last question. Uh, The second category is the the prefectures that are extremely proud on their role, on the role they played in the Meiji Restoration. Um, And that is uh, Yamaguchi and Kagoshima. First um, of all, the former Shoshu and Satsuma feudal domains, Uh, they come in number four and five or six or so in the ranking. They have large numbers of statues. And uh, Saga, to which you were referring, is a little bit of an outlier there. Uh, They have relatively few statues. Um, It might have to do, of course, with um, Saga being, uh, uh, of course, economically, not uh, particularly Um, affluent, I suppose. Uh, But Yamaguchi and Kagoshima also um, obviously see this as a priority. So they don't belong to the richest prefectures in Japan, but they have made the preservation um, of the Meiji Restoration and their role therein a real uh, priority. So that's why you can find dozens of statues in these two prefectures that are relating to the history of the Meiji Restoration.
2: Wow, that is so interesting. Next time if I go to Kagoshima, <laughs> yes. I'll, I'll keep an yeah, eye for yeah. these statues. Mm. Thank you so much for this wonderful yeah, no, conversation.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
2: Thank you. And for our listeners, to learn more about bronze statues in 19th and 20th century Japan, make sure you check out this book, Men in Metal, a Topography of Public Bronze Statuary in Modern Japan by Sven Sala. This is Jingyi from New Books on Japanese Studies, and I will see you again in our next episode. Until then, goodbye.